Chevy Bel Air, and we would drive around the community looking at all the lights. Now, we never saw anything like that. But uh, that was, and it, and it was kind of ironic because we didn't do that at our house. We didn't have a Christmas tree inside. We had four red candles at the front four windows, and that was it. Uh, but we'd like to drive around and look at uh, the lights and the shrubs and the lights on the trees. There is something magical about Christmas lights and all the colors and the intricacy. Some of this is getting a little overboard, I think, uh, kind of losing some of the joy. But there is something magical about Christmas lights. A number of years ago, um, the band Coldplay did a song called Christmas Lights. And it was kind of a sad story about a man who's lost his girlfriend. And, and as he looks at the lights aligning the streets, they run all down to the water. He's thinking that he, he's filled with kind of a sense of hope that maybe the lights themselves are going to bring her back to him. He writes, those Christmas lights light up the street. Maybe they'll bring her back to me. Then all my troubles will be gone. And even in the midst of... Uh, even in the midst of trials and difficulties in your life, you look at those lights and there's something that says to you, there's a future ahead. And you might wonder where in the world these lights came from. And you have to go back quite a ways in history. The roots of our Christmas tree lights go back to maybe the uh, 1500s or so. And they actually began with, uh, it started with some pagan traditions. Uh, People in Germany and surrounding areas Um, thought that the gods got angry at them in the fall and so the leaves all died and everything grew barren Uh, but they would bring green branches of evergreen trees into their homes to remind them that the gods were going to smile again in the spring and the leaves would all come out and new life well along the way some christians began to co-opt this tradition and eventually christmas trees came out of that and one of the things that they would do was put little lights they would fasten little lights on the branches when i mean lights in the 16th century, 15th, 16th century, we're talking candles. Now you can do just a little of imagination. If they're going to keep that tree in the house for any period of time and you've got candles on the branches, there's a little bit of a fire hazard there. And so in 1882, an employee of uh, Thomas Edison by the name of Edward Johnson came up with a, with a solution. Now, about 11 years before, uh, Edison had invented the light, electric light bulb. Now, there was a problem with that. You would think that would be a great advance. But nobody had electricity. And so um, Johnson was kind of a, they they described him as part engineer, part businessman, part P.T. Barnum. And so he'd figure out ways to make things like this sell. And in 1882, he set up a Christmas tree outside of his parlor window there in his apartment in New York City. He put it on a a stand that could revolve, and he handcrafted 80 little lights, little electric lights. A third of them were blue, a third of them were red, and a third of them were white. And he strung them on this tree. And then he had a little generator there because nobody had electricity. He had a little generator there that ran the lights, turned the lights on, and made the platform go around in a circle. And because he was a a P.T. Barnum kind of guy, he called the newspapers and had them come out and look at this. And they were, oh, wow. And they wrote a story about it and it wasn't too long until the white house started putting electric lights on its tree every year and then people began to do this in the yards and by the 1930s almost everybody had amazing colored lights on their yards and that's how we got christmas lights 
This morning, we're starting a series called Shadows in the Tradition, and we're talking about the different traditions that we have. We're going to talk about music next Sunday, and then the following week, the Christmas tree, and then the Sunday before Christmas, we're going to talk about Christmas cards. We're going to look into the uh, behind, kind of behind the scenes of those traditions and see the, the sh- in the shadows some links to the gospel story. And so this morning, we're going to talk not about Christmas lights per se, but about the Christmas light. And so if you want to turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 49. Now, in this was written about 700 years before Jesus showed up on the scene. And it was a prophecy given by God to prophet Isaiah. And from chapters 42 to 53, there are four songs that God gave to Isaiah. We call them the servant songs because they're they are songs about some mysterious person simply described as the servant of the Lord. The first one that describes him as a judge, that he's going to come and bring justice to the nations. The second one describes him as a revivalist. He's going to come and bring Israel back to the Lord. The fourth one is one that you might be familiar with. It's the sufferer, that this servant is depicted as a sufferer, Isaiah 53 and part of 52. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know that? The third one is the one we're looking at this morning, and that is that describes the servant as the light, a light to the world. So look at with me at verse 6. He says, and this is a reference to God, God says, you, speaking of the servant, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Let's ask God for his soul. Father, thank you for the light. We're so grateful. Uh, Even today, the light is shining. And many of us here could testify that there was a day that you turned on the light in our lives, in our hearts. And uh, it's a a light that you've left us the responsibility of shining unto the world as well. This morning, help us to hear from your Holy Spirit. And conversely, we pray that you would silence the enemy that he would have no ability uh, to move in our midst. We're grateful for that day when you said, let there be light. We're grateful also that there wasn't any doubt in the outcome. There was no uncertainty. Well, will it happen or won't it? You said, let there be light, and there was. And then you separated the light from the darkness. And as people who were born steeped in darkness, we're really grateful for that and for the hope that your light brought. Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's ample evidence around us that we live in a dark world. I want you to imagine for a little bit a world totally without light. So just imagine you're in a uh, tunnel. Maybe some of you have been in a cave already where the guide has turned out the lights. It's just gone black. And it's, it's the kind of darkness that you can almost taste. You can almost feel it. You're so disoriented. Um, there's no ambient light whatsoever. When I've been hunting, a, a couple occasions I've gotten lost, and it's, it's very uh, unnerving. I remember one morning I left in the dark, and I was going to my spot, so I thought. I ended up going in a, in a complete circle in a period of about 45 minutes. I thought I had discovered a new road that nobody knew about. I just ended up back where I started. 
But even then, there's, there's some ambient light from the stars, even if it's dark outside. You know, you can see the trees up here. You might not be able to see them down here. And I, of course, have a flashlight. There's always something to fall back on. But imagine that if all of a sudden the twinkling lights went out in the heavens. Imagine if you had no flashlight. Imagine if the flashlight on your cell phone died for whatever reason. If you're out in a car and everything went inky black like that and your headlights went out, you'd be afraid to move anywhere because you might move and run right off the road. You might be near a cliff and run, run off the edge of the cliff. A darkness is not only disorienting, but it's incredibly dangerous. If you get in a place like a, 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 a tunnel, if you get in a place like uh, in the woods and everything goes dark, you can end up hurting yourself. You can end up being injured. Imagine if you ha- walk a street where a certain part of the street is where the criminal element of the community hangs out and all of a sudden everything goes dark. You're afraid to walk ahead. You might run into one of those people who means you harm. A dark completely dark world is a very scary prospect now of course the darkness that God talks about and the light that he talks about is meant to deal with something other than simply our next footstep or the next mile that we might drive there's certainly ample evidence around the world that it is a dark world for example this morning there are about 1.3 billion people in the world that live on less than a dollar and a quarter a day, less than $500 a year for you to eat, for you to have doctor visits paid for, for you to have some sort of shelter, less than $500 a year, could you do it? Not only could you do it for yourself, could you do it for your family? There are about 850 million people in the world who don't have access to the clean water like we'll get out of our fountain out here or you can get out of your uh, faucet at home today. The only water they have access to is dirty, polluted, maybe even full of bacteria. Maybe that's where the start of cholera happens if you're in a country like Haiti. Almost a million people without clean water. There are 42 million prostitutes in the world. Do you know why? Because there are 100 million or more customers of theirs. This is the kind of world that we live in. There's ample evidence that this is a dark, dark world. A country that I have some interest in for a variety of reasons, Yemen, war-torn country. They say that there are 5 million children right now at risk of starving to death in the next six months. 5 million. No food. Even before the war, they were importing 80% of their food. Now, supply lines have broken down. It's a dark world. It's not that we can't see to get around, but it is that there is a darkness of humanity's heart and a brokenness in the world itself that leads us to conclude that this world is not as it should be. And the Bible tells us that the darkness, all of that darkness really begins in our, these human hearts of ours. Ephesians chapter 2, first couple of verses, says this is who you are or you once were. We were once living as spiritually dead people because we were living in sins. We were obeying the devil even though we never would have admitted it at the time, didn't understand it at the time. 
That when we thought of something, we had a sinful desire that wasn't a good desire, but we thought of it, we thought, I'll, I'll go ahead and indulge in that. The, the darkness of the human heart is not just as uh, uh, depicted as a, there's a certain group that have a dark heart, and these people have good hearts. And we all start out that way. We're all in the same dire straits. The world really is without light. Now, it's hard to imagine that because when you leave here this morning, you're going to get in your car, you're going to drive home. Even though your headlights will be on, they don't really need to be. That's just how the car makers make the cars these days. It's going to be light enough for you to see to get home. And when you get home and you make lunch for your family, you're not going to need to turn the light on in the kitchen or the dining room because there's enough light coming in from the outdoors. But it's dark. It's dark because of the human heart. Let me have you look at a couple of verses this morning, starting with Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He's describing the Gentiles. Remember the text we read says that the servant is coming as a light to the Gentiles too. He says, verse 18, their minds are full of darkness, they wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame, they live for lustful pleasure and regularly, eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Their minds are full of darkness. Now, they don't know that. And so some people, and some of, there are some of you here today probably that are like, I, that's not me, but you don't know that it is you. For some of you, it might be your swimming coach. This is true of her. For some of you, one of your school teachers. For some of us, it's the people that live across the street from us or right next door to us. For some of us, it's going to be half a dozen people that we go to work with tomorrow who are living in darkness. This is true of them. Even though they're not as bad as they could be, their minds are full of darkness. How do you feel about them? Here's what I mean by that. Do you see them in the darkness that they're really in? Or have you bought the lie that they believe that they're not really in darkness? Because it's one of those things that can make us live our day, day in and day out, totally preoccupied with just the things that we need in life to get by and not worry, not think, not be concerned about all of these people that are in our lives that are in darkness. Now, despite the fact that it's a dark world, there was a light that came to evict that darkness. Zechariah, John the Baptist's daddy, before his son was born, made this prophecy in Luke 1, 78 and 9. He says, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us. This is before John was born, before Jesus was born. But the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Jesus came to evict darkness from the world. To turn the light on for people in the world. Now, it's interesting. The first people that came to Jesus there in the manger in Bethlehem were a bunch of Jewish shepherds, like Jesus was. Jewish. And yet, soon after, we have the magi, the court counselors coming from, I don't know, 
We don't know really where they're from. Iran, India, perhaps Armenia, so which is east of Turkey. Uh, we don't know where they're from, but we know this. They were Gentiles. Early on, Jesus, is, even in his ministry days, he was ministering to Gentiles despite the fact that he said, I've come primarily to the lost sheep of Israel. And yet he says about a Gentile Roman soldier, I haven't found the kind of faith you have in all the Jewish people I've met. He cast a demon out of a, a, a Gentile woman, Syrophoenician mother, cast a demon out of her daughter. He cast a demon out of a bunch of demons out of this man who was filled with demons on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which was Gentile territory, turned on the light of their lives. And maybe even more significantly, he turned on the light to start an entire movement. Remember the text says, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Some of you know this verse. When Jesus left to go back to heaven, what did he say to his, his disciples? You, say it with me if you know it. And you will be my, you will be my witnesses. And you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem. Judea, say it with me. Judea. Samaria. And the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. What did Isaiah say? You, my servant, will be a light to the Gentiles and you will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And now Jesus is saying as he's leaving and going back to heaven, you're going to be my witnesses to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And lo and behold, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost on all those 120 Christians and blew the lights out of people who were watching... What happened? God gave the ability of all those Christians to start speaking the praises of God in languages they had never learned. Those people probably all knew Aramaic, they probably all knew Greek, and probably most of them knew Hebrew. But they didn't know the languages they were saying that day. The people who were there from Egypt understood them. The people who spoke Arabic understood them. The Parthians understood them. The Medes understood them. The Libyans understood them. The people from Phrygia and Pamphylia and Cappadocia and Mesopotamia understood all of these Christians. You know, sometimes the people who believe that the gift of tongues has ceased and the people who think it's still continue, we get to squabbling about whether the gift's ongoing and, and miss the glorious reason God gave that gift in the first place. It's so that people who know the light can shine the light on other people who don't speak their language. And all these folks heard the wonders of God ascending to heaven in their own language. And, their own, and all of a sudden, God had their attention. And Peter began to speak to them about the light who had come to the Gentiles. Now, most of the people hearing this story that day of the wonders of God in their own language were Jews or they were converts to Judaism. That's why they were in Jerusalem, celebrate the Feast of, Paso, or Feast of Pentecost. But there were a bunch of them who were converts to Judaism who were not natural-born Jews, who had folks back home who were not Jews and had not been converted to Judaism and had friends back home who didn't know the light. And didn't know that a light had come to them 
to the Gentiles. It is an amazing, amazing story. You see, here's what happened. God sent his son, Jesus the Messiah, to be a light to the Gentiles. And then Jesus came, lived, died, and was raised to life again and went back home. And now Jesus passed off that assignment. He was the light, but now we're to take the light to the rest of the world. It's interesting. Uh, And by the way, if you have uh, sermon notes and you're following, I've flip-flopped the last two application points. I want to talk about keeping keep lighting God's dark world. And let me take you to Acts chapter 13, where Paul quotes this Isaiah scripture and listen to what he does with it. Uh, Starting at verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Again, this is the early days of the church. Spoke out boldly and declared, it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. For the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for his message. And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. Now let's back up. So he quotes the Isaiah prophecy that 700 years down the road, this Messiah is going to show up on the scene and become a light to the Gentiles. But he says... I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. And prior to that, Paul says the Lord gave us this command when he said. In other words, it wasn't just God giving the command to his son Jesus to go and be a light to the Gentiles. But then when he's gone, Jesus' followers are now commissioned to continue that light to the rest of the world. You and I have been entrusted with a great, marvelous, and terrifying responsibility. And that is to be light to a dark, dark world. What do you do first thing you go into a dark room? Right? You flip on the light. You'll keep the hall light on if you, go to the, if you go to bed tonight, you're going to keep the hall light on until you can reach the bedroom light so that you don't stumble over things, stub your toe on, uh, on the bed and say some unchristian words. Got to have the light switch on. It's the first thing you do when you walk in a dark room. Is that the th- first thing that you and I do when we walk in a dark room? Listen, our dark room is everywhere we are. Everywhere we go is a dark room. You go to work, unless you work with all Christians, it's dark. You go to school, unless all your classmates and all your teammates are Christians, you're in a dark place. You drive up and down the streets, you're in a dark place. Everywhere we go, it's dark. And God says to us, you are to carry on my commission to turn the light on in a dark place. That's why we're here. We're not just here to accumulate wealth. We're not just here to watch some exciting events, uh, athletic events. We are here to turn the light on for people who are not only in the dark, 
but most of them don't know that they're in the dark. Some people are going to be disinterested in the light that you and I share with them, and it should not surprise us. John chapter 3, verse 19 says, that, uh, says God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. So it shouldn't surprise us when people reject the message that we share with them. They like living in the dark. They're comfortable living in the dark, all they've ever known. Our job is not to make sure people embrace the light. Our job is to shine the light. It's up to God and them whether or not they embrace the light. Brothers and sisters, if you share the gospel 20 times in your life, 200 times in your life, or 2,000 times in your life, Get the monkey off your back to feel that you have to make sure people say yes to Jesus. That's not your job. That's not my job. People have to decide. The Holy Spirit has to come to bear on their lives. Our job is simply to shine the light. Our job, just turn the light on. They can decide whether or not they're interested in the light. Just turn the light on for them. And let the chips fall where they may. You don't have to make sure this happens or that. Now, by the way... It is, after all, a supernatural event anytime somebody sees the light and embraces it, right? Amen? Is it a supernatural event? It's not a human event. Jesus, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees who were following him around and, and criticizing him all the time? He says, look, it's not a surprise to me that you're not going to embrace me because no one can come to uh, me unless the Father draws him. It's a supernatural event. How do we get supernatural things to happen? We pray. And so not only are you called to turn on the light, but to pray that the light will be embraced. It's up to them. It's up to the Lord. Keep turning the light on in this dark world, brothers and sisters. And over Christmas time, we have some wonderful opportunities. Some of us are going to be with family members or friends and that don't know Jesus. Turn the light on. You don't need to be kind of in your face. Just look for those opportunities that God op- is going to open in those conversations. To speak a word for him. You don't have to give the whole gospel presentation. Just turn the light on. Second thing I want to take out of this message, have us take out of this message, is keep lighting your own dark world. And what I mean by that is the darkness that remains in you. I wonder how many of you would say, if I asked you to raise your hand, my life is always full of light. <laughs> Versus how many of us would say, you know what? There are times that I go back and I flip that switch and all of a sudden it's dark in my life again. I forgot what the light was, how glorious it was. And I thought for a minute, I thought for a day, I thought for a month that wouldn't it be great to, for it to be dark again? The fact of the matter is our sinful nature has been crucified, but it has not been destroyed. There's a day coming when it's going to be destroyed, when we leave this world and we get home to glory with heaven. Hallelujah for that day. I look forward to that day almost for that reason more than any other, that finally my sin nature has been done for. But it's still here. And there's still moments when you're going to be on that computer and you see something over on the side that's tempting and tantalizing. And you think for a minute, maybe you think for five minutes, you know what? That's really better than the light I have. 
And all of a sudden you go, click. And your relationship with your husband, your wife, they did you wrong. You're going to pay them back. Forgiveness is not on the table. And for a moment, maybe five minutes, maybe for five hours or two days, you forget that the light is far more satisfying than the darkness. And you flip the switch, turning the light off. Keep turning on the light. Let me take you again to Ephesians chapter 5, beginning of verse 7. Don't participate in the things these people do, speaking to believers here. For you were once full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. And we could add to that, and conversely, the darkness produces every other kind of thing. We love darkness because our deeds are sometimes evil. Remember the last time that you thought darkness would be more appealing. And then you come out of that and you look back and say, what in the world was I thinking? Forgot that darkness is going to rob me of joy. Forgot that darkness is going to um, kind of stir up monsters in your mind. You know, when I was a kid, I was terrified of the dark. There was uh, at the top of our stairs, we had a two-story house. At the top of the stairs, there was a little alcove that had been built in between the studs, and in there sat a green hurricane lamp that was lit all night. And uh, down the hallway to each of our bedrooms, you could see the light, and that was there primarily for Keith because I was so scared of the dark. And it was about six years old uh, when I think when my mom and dad tried to wean me off that light. And it took about a year to really get over that. Because when the lights would go out, the monsters would come out. And we didn't have television. I didn't read comic books. I had nothing to, to kind of feed these anxieties and fears. But I was creative enough in my own mind to imagine critters underneath my bed and in the closet over here and and imagining their hot breath breathing on me and what they were going to do to me. And it took a long time to put that behind me. And you know something that's true when we're in the dark? We are full of fears. And don't misunderstand me. Anxieties and fears don't automatically go away when we embrace the light of Christ but we have a power over them and we have a cure for them that we didn't have before and you'll find when you revert back to the darkness like we have a tendency to do sometimes when we think it sounds better than the dark um, than the light uh, some of those anxieties and fears begin to resurface First John 4 says that in God there is no fear. Perfect love casts out fear. These are the kinds of things that if we go back into the dark that we don't think about when we're going, we think about the first step back into the dark. We don't think about the monsters that start to surface. We don't think about the way we lose our equilibrium, lose our joy. We 
Don't think about the possibility that back in the darkness we're going to step off the edge of a cliff and go tumbling down into the depths of despair. We overlook for those moments how we have been forgiven. And so we allow bitterness to resurface towards another person. In the darkness we can hide what a lousy husband we are, what a lousy wife we are. In the darkness we can hide that we cheat regularly on tests at school. Pastor Charlie is um, continually badgering me about transparency. To be more open and honest about who I am and stuff I go through. And you know, he drives me crazy. And we butt heads sometimes about this because I think he's too transparent and he thinks I'm not transparent enough. And he's probably right. One of the things that we've been privileged to watch in the wake of the summit is just the increased transparency in this congregation. And I've seen it some and myself as well. And I don't want, Charlie and I will probably continue to disagree a bit about this, but I don't want him to ever stop badgering me. Because one of the things that's true about transparency is it turns on the light. And what I mean by that is it gives me um, it gives me greater and greater opportunity to hear from other people about whether or not how I see things is correct. There's a reason that James says in James chapter five that we should confess our sins to one another, and that's probably um, that's probably square one where we're not transparent. I don't want you to know who I really am. I don't want you to know what I struggle with, sin temptations that are mine. I don't want you to know. Good grief, I'm a pastor. You can't know that. What might you think? And maybe in smaller ways or maybe in bigger ways, you run through the same thing in your mind. What will people think? I don't want people to know what scares me. I don't want people to know what bothers me. I don't want people to know this, that, or the other thing about me. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. Transparency helps make sure the light stays on the way it needs to be. One of the things we were praying about this morning uh, in the prayer meeting before church was the um, just, just kind of an ongoing sense of family that we seem to have experienced in the summit and the wake of the summit where you seem to think more about the rest of the people here as your brothers and sisters, and I do as well. And it, it, there's, it's almost like a, an undercurrent that we've been watching. And that kind of thing gets fostered with transparency. The more you're willing and able to tell somebody else things that you wouldn't have been able to and willing to tell them, a week or a month ago or a year ago, the more likely we are to be brothers and sisters to each other, to take those kinds of risks that you usually take with family members at home and to take them with family members here. Again, I'm appreciative of Charlie badgering me on that because this is another one more way for us to walk in the light, specifically keeping the light um, in our own lives and waging war against the darkness. You're going to have a lot of opportunities this Christmas season to turn on the light for other people and opportunities to keep your own light lit.
Let's pray for God's grace to do that well. Father, we give you thanks for the light of Jesus Christ that has been brought into so many of our lives. I'm guessing there are some here this morning that's not the case for. And I pray that the switch would be um, turned on in their lives. First, that they would recognize that they are in darkness. And second, believe that the light is better than the darkness. That the Jesus who came to earth as a, a little baby, grew up, became a man, and then went to the cross and died a horrific death, didn't just die that death so he could impress people, didn't just die that kind of death so that he could set an example of how to die for your friends, but he died that death so that like a bull or a goat or sheep in ancient days, that his shedding of blood would pay for the price incurred by my sins and by their sins. I pray that people would believe that Jesus loved them so much that he did that for them and that they can have his light simply by asking forgiveness of him for their sins and he will pay for them. And then they can have a reconciled relationship with you. I pray for that person that might be here this morning for them to embrace that light of Jesus Christ. And for us in these days around the holidays when we have um, probably many opportunities to be around people that are in the dark, that we would just have a mindset, I'm, I'm going to be a switch here for God. And I'm going to turn the light on. What they decide, what they, how they respond is up to them. I'm going to pray for them, but it's their call. I'm going to just make sure that I turn the light on for them. And secondly, that we keep the light on in our own life this Christmas season. That others looking in can see something of that light by how we speak and don't speak, by how we act and don't act. We pray this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.